The future of project management is changing fast. On Projectified with PMI, we'll help you stay on top of the trends and see what's really ahead for the profession and your career. For an easy way to stay up to date on Projectified with PMI, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music or pmi.org slash podcast. Hello, I'm Stephen May and this is Projectified with PMI. I'm here with my co-host Tegan Jones and in this episode we're talking about bleeding edge projects, the projects that incorporate technology so new that it's still unreliable, something that obviously introduces a lot of risk. But they're not always the type of risks that you might expect. If you're rolling out new technology, for instance, you know that it might not work out as planned, that there will be bugs that you'll have to address. But there's also that domino effect that's a lot harder to predict. Sometimes the biggest issue is knowing how doing something completely new in one area is going to impact the way things work down the line. And sometimes it's more about whether people are willing to accept the technology, whether they're willing to change their thinking and change their behaviors. I just saw a story out of Florida where the city of Clearwater wants to launch a groundwater replenishment facility that would purify wastewater so that it's safe to drink. That water would then go back into the aquifer the city draws its drinking water from. And a lot of people are, understandably, really uncomfortable with this innovation. And it has earned the unfortunate label of toilet-to-tap technology. Yeah, when you say it that way, it does sound kind of gross. But I can see the value of this type of technology. I mean, so many communities are experiencing clean water shortages due to drought or pollution, and this could really help address that issue. Still, I imagine it'll take a lot of work to get people on board to convince them that treated wastewater really is safe to drink. Well, absolutely. And it actually reminds me of going back a number of decades to the first nuclear power plant in France. And there was a lot of resistance to building this. No one wanted the reactor in their backyard. And some of the steps that they went through to build acceptance and to build support for that were really interesting. You know, three of the things that come to mind was the local leadership, and I believe it was the equivalent of a mayor, was actually given shutdown authority. Also, they required the plant leadership and their families to live downwind of the plant. So the people building this and that are going to run it, that are trying to assure people would actually have to live downwind of the plant. And then finally, they gave free power to that community. And through the steps that they took, they actually considerably lowered the resistance and increased the, uh, the willingness and commitment to do this. And uh, of course, ultimately, as history tells us, they got it done. Yeah, that often is the type of legwork it takes to get people to adopt these really revolutionary technologies. And we're starting to see how this might play out in regards to artificial intelligence, even though this technology is still pretty much in its infancy. When I was at PMI Global Conference in LA, I talked about this trend with Mark Lehman, who's the director of the Transformation Assurance Division for PwC in Zurich, Switzerland. And he talked about how artificial intelligence can help organizations run more successful projects, as well as what leaders have to do to build buy-in for this new way of working. Leaders definitely have to approach first-of-its-kind projects from a couple of different directions. They have to address the emotional element, whether people are willing to make a change, but also the mental or intellectual element, meaning whether people actually have the skills they need to do something new. James Stewart, a vice chair at KPMG in the UK, says that skill building, particularly putting leaders with the right skills in charge, is a major success factor for bleeding-edge projects. We'll hear more from him on that later in this episode. 
But let's start in the biotech sector, where there's tons of cool new technologies giving patients a new lease on life. Our first guest is Michael O'Connor, Director of Strategy and Project Management for Medtronic, one of the world's largest medical device companies. Medtronic was actually a pioneer of the first pacemaker, and it recently ran a program to revolutionize that technology all over again. When you're building something that's meant to live in someone's body, that is an enormous responsibility. Let's hear how they get it right. Medtronic first disrupted the medical field in 1957 with the invention of the battery-operated pacemaker. And in 2016, the company raised the bar again with the rollout of Micra. Roughly the size of a large pill, Micra is 93% smaller than a traditional pacemaker, but has the same battery life. And that has huge implications for patients, says Michael O'Connor, Medtronic's Director of Strategy and Project Management. We've drastically miniaturized the size of this device with the same quality, and in some cases better quality, than we had before. So we basically reinvented our largest market that we've been the leader for at least 50 years. But getting Micra ready for market was a long and costly process. So the project's success depended on internal advocates who understood its true potential. When the project started out, it needed champions that saw a longer-term vision and a commercialization. So the people that were orchestrating that, I would call them mavericks, they actually had a plan of where they wanted to go with this. They were able to articulate the risks in a way that management would see what the current risk was to pay off, which I think is very important. How much this could really grow our market and disrupt our own market, which we're the leaders in. Yet a clear vision was only one part of the equation. Over the years, the team also had to regularly communicate its progress to show that Micro was still a worthwhile investment. You can't innovate and create disruptive technology with nothing. You have to have you know, resources to be able to do that. It's leaders being able to ask the questions of where do you see this potential technology or innovation in a year or two years, and, and also breaking that down into the smallest executable step that you can. What little step can you do today that can move that technology or disruptive innovation to the next step that someone else could pick up or that you could take to another leader or stakeholder and show them? Setting clear expectations with stakeholders also helped the project stay afloat when things didn't work out exactly as planned. It's important to message it in the right way, because if you don't message it the correct way, someone's going to make up their own mind that that was a failure because of X, Y, Z when it was not. It's more about what you learn, not how you failed. Micro was ultimately a success for Medtronic, but that success was never guaranteed. Michael O'Connor says the best way to deal with that type of uncertainty when it comes to innovation is to diversify the project portfolio. In this disruptive, innovative area, you need to have a lot of different technology bets. So you don't want to just put all of your time, money, and effort and project managers and project team members onto one disruptive technology that may work. You want to have many different projects out there that you could invest in and and potentially become that next billion-dollar commercial market. None of us know early on in technology and innovation what may or may not work. Things may even change or morph over time to be something different than they started with. But by having these visionaries and having this leadership support, it helps keep these things going. And we can continue to change and have a portfolio of projects that will lead to those one or two big businesses or big hits for us to help patients lead a better life. When you're out in front of a trend or technology, you definitely need a vision for where you're going. There's simply no one to follow. 
Even if you can't pinpoint exactly where you'll land or how you'll get there, you do need a clear idea of what you're trying to achieve. And everyone at the organization or on the project team has to share that vision. It's that shared understanding that makes it possible to make smart decisions when things go off the rails on a first-of-its-kind project, which is certainly bound to happen at some point along the way. James Stewart, vice chair of KPMG in the UK, spoke with us about what he's seen work when it comes to navigating the curveballs that come with extreme innovation. You've always got to expect the unexpected, and James has a lot of experience with that. So let's hear what he has to say. The one piece of advice I would give an organization embarking on these first-of-a-kind projects is to plan up front. The initial planning phase is so vital because that plan will make you think through all the various scenarios that are going to arise on that project. They will make you build in flexibility in both your resourcing and your plan. And when I use the word flexibility, I'm not talking about contingency. Contingency is a different thing. What I'm talking about is this ability to flex your resources, to flex your plan, to move to a plan B when things arise. A first of its kind project, by its very nature, will be unique. You will not know exactly what to expect. And therefore, bringing the right skills and experience to a project of that kind is difficult and very different. So the big question that I think leaders need to ask to make sure they're ready for a leading edge project is, first of all, do they have the right leadership for the project? And in my experience, that does boil down to an individual. And then underneath the leader, you need a breadth of skills. You're not going to have the exact skills for that particular project because by definition it's going to be different to anything you've done before, but you need a full breadth of skills so that the team as a whole can manage the risks and all those things that undoubtedly you're going to come across which will be unexpected. So I think for these first-of-a-kind projects you need to go beyond the usual stakeholders and certainly best practice to me is to put together a group of people who can bring a sort of non-executive perspective. These are people who are not involved in the day-to-day engine room of project management. These are people who come in periodically and review what's going on and give the benefit of their experience. And maybe that's going to be a change of direction. Maybe it will just be supporting a current activity. But as I said, it's an external non-executive type input. So I think for these new types of projects, the buzzword at the moment is project assurance and really take it one step further, progressive assurance. And, and what this means to me is putting in place a team of people whose job is to assure the activities of the project manager on behalf of the sponsor and the client. Now, in my experience, this is relatively new, but it does involve a completely independent team sitting away from the engine room of the project management activity and assuring their activities. and. That assurance should be a positive experience. So it's not just criticizing and reviewing what's been done. It's also suggesting things that can be done and bringing innovation and ideas. No one, of course, likes having an auditor or controller looking over their shoulder. But James is right. It doesn't have to be a negative experience if everyone really is working together toward shared objectives. It can be really helpful to have someone offering oversight and advice on how you can improve, but it can also be tough to get feedback that might seem a little negative. Our next guest actually talks about this from a kind of interesting perspective. 
Mark Lehman, who's the director of the Transformation Assurance Division at PwC in Zurich, Switzerland, says he's starting to see artificial intelligence play a larger role in this type of governance. And he says that some people are having a hard time adjusting, partly because AI tells the truth in a way that's just a little too stark. Right. And when you're talking to a machine, there's none of the niceties that we're so accustomed to. A project's either on track or it's not. And that can be perhaps a little jarring. Yeah, it can. And Mark talked a little bit about how you can get people over that uneasiness when I spoke to him at PMI Global Conference in LA. And I think we have an excerpt of that conversation to share now. Good. Let's hear what he had to say. Good morning, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me here on this episode of Projectified with PMI. I've got your title here as you are the director of the Transformation Assurance Division at PwC Switzerland. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, good morning, King. So why don't we get started here? I want to I wanna learn a little bit more about your work at PwC in the Transformation Assurance Division. So what does that mean? What is, what is it that you do there? So what we are doing is to, to have our clients uh, on large-scale transformation uh, programs to really uh, bring the benefits uh, to, to the end and as well realize those and as well protect investment. So what we are seeing is that really all the technological breakthroughs really coming into um, the business, helping organizations to be more efficient and to optimize the processes. And as well, a lot is um, nowadays concentrating on optimization of processes, uh, integration of workflows. There is where our company is investing. And for sure, they're using new technologies like uh, big data, science machines, uh, and as well as the machine learning part, natural processing languages, to really get it done. And that's what artificial intelligence is, is, is as well, really bringing uh, machines uh, into the real business. So what does that look like? How do you actually incorporate artificial intelligence into the way an organization does whatever work it's trying to do? So um, artificial intelligence uh, can be used uh, everywhere where you're able to automate parts. So that means before you have to standardize uh, things and you need uh, like uh, good maturity on the process level in the organization. Because machine learning needs data from the past, but you have to create data first and use the data. And that's one of the biggest challenges which we are facing now. What's some of the most valuable data that an organization uh, would want to pull from? So first of all, you need the data of the daily work. So really identify, first of all, the processes that you have a clear workflow defined, which can be followed, and that the workflow can use specific um, factors to really get into the data. That means as well, if people are working on a specific uh, process, then you need some data points on that. That can be a timesheet, um, that can be um, a writing uh, status report. So you need something entered into the data coming from a human to really get a data point. Once you have the data that you need and you've uh, been able to start using AI to predict you know, what's happening, going to be happening in the future, wh- what are some of the ways that organizations can use AI to make their workflows more efficient? That's really the automation and the integration. So really getting line automated the project scheduling in the project management area. As well, um, getting a project budget forecast automatically if you have a change scope or if you have to really bring uh, insights into your data. The second part is as well to bring like uh, more the human voice as well to it, uh, using uh, language processing uh, tools into it, like using chat points uh, that your project uh, team is able to ask specific questions to the data which is underlying. That's what we're seeing currently. Is this changing the way that people uh, work on projects? How are people having to alter the way they think or alter the way they work in order to use these tools effectively? So there are two types of people. First 
the first type is really using it and seeing there is um, a value to, to it because they can be more efficient, get inside, can be used it. But there's the other type um, that's really more have fear using artificial intelligence because they bring in insights in their normal work and as well they, they show deficiencies as well. And people don't love to see deficiencies, their own deficiencies. And that's the biggest challenge as well. That's a cultural change. Trust in using artificial intelligence to get the right answer. Because people not really like those answers uh, sometimes. Right, because sometimes it's bad news. Yeah, for sure. That's not bad. That's a true picture. The other part, you have a big challenge. Uh, machines are not human. There's no humankind behind. So machines are very direct. So if, if you're using like um, all those automation workflows uh, and integrations, and if you have chatbots uh, in your environment, they will ask all those uh, freaky questions about where's the status of your project, uh, why you have a deviation uh, on your budget. That's, that's all asking questions without having any humanity behind. They will not accept any excuses on that. Right. Do companies seem nervous about uh, adopting AI in their organizations, or are you seeing a lot of a lot of leaders being kind of scared um, of making the change, or are a lot of organizations kind of boldly moving ahead? What, what's the feeling on that? So what we are seeing is that companies heavily investing uh, into that to to adapt it. But what we're seeing as well, not all organizations are ready yet to really use artificial intelligence uh, as a tool or as a machine, because they are not ready from a data perspective. They have not enough structured data to really get the machines uh, to be learned on a specific area. What are some successes that you've seen? We've, we've talked a lot about kind of the obstacles, but is there um, a way an organization has implemented AI that has helped them really become more efficient or you know, run a very difficult project in a successful way that you've seen? So those companies uh, have really realized the full artificial intelligence environment, that means really have the prediction on it, they get insights which other companies uh, does not have. So like on the portfolio level, you see which project in your portfolio is going well and which uh, is close to be failing. And that's really um, good because then you can steer and control your project more efficiently. What are some of the things that AI can really help predict. So in terms of portfolio performance and picking the right projects, are there any specific areas that predictive AI really helps the most in? Yeah. So we, we would love to have like the success uh, on a project predicted, but that's, that's not so easy as it sounds. So it's more like um, it, is a time by predicted. Uh, what would be the end of a project predicted uh, on the certain uh, circumstances for project and the environment if it's not changing? And as well, uh, what would be um, the budget uh, forecast? So the budget can be um, as well uh, predicted and as well like write-offs on specific projects. So all those areas where you have really data uh, which you can rely on. So if you were trying to build the business case for adopting AI, you know, what are some of those numbers that you'd want to be projecting out for your executives? So what you need for, first of all, uh, the current uh, project cost in the company. So often companies have no clue about what, what the project costs are, but if you know that, uh, and, and, and you know the numbers uh, of FDEs as well, they really are working on projects, then you can really show if you bring artificial intelligence into it from a percentage perspective, if you have automation process running, that you can really um, be sensitive on cost on that, then you can start with that. But if you have already a high maturity and a very lean project management organization, then it's much more um, difficult to get artificial intelligence in your project organization for sure. So if you 
go in to meet with an organization and it's the first conversation, what are the first questions that you ask an organization that's you know wanting to get started with this process? So the first question I'm asking is, do you know your five largest programs running in your organization and do you know if they stick to the plan? And often there's a pause and uh, people start to really uh, get an answer on it because they have no clue in the moment. There's no real-time information available. So they have to reach out to the organization to get that information. So that, that's an easy question, but organization often not able to answer that immediately. So that's what an organization should start with, is asking that question and trying to gather the data internally. Absolutely, to, to have transparency on the whole portfolio and how that portfolio is really supporting the strategy. Strategies are changing, and in that time, due to all the technological breakthroughs, it's changing much more and faster. And therefore, they have to adapt all the business strategies, and that means they have to adapt the portfolio and project as well, because that's supporting the strategy. And therefore, you need like a real-time view where your projects are running, and if they're really supporting still the strategy. Excellent. Well, those were all the questions that I had for you today. Thanks so much for joining thank me. Thank you. <laughs> and I hope you have a great time at the rest of the conference. I will. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Projectified with PMI. If you liked this episode, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. We'd love your feedback, so please leave a rating or review.